<clears throat> All right. Uh, today we are uh, in the middle of Romans chapter 11. Last week we looked at verses uh, 11 through uh, 15. And uh, today I want to pick it up with verse 16 and look at the next four or five verses down through about verse 21. Uh, so let's go back and read, uh, excuse me, beginning in, <coughs> beginning in verse 11 and down through 21. Uh, <coughs> well, let's read down through, <coughs> excuse me, so we get the context, read down through 24. Uh, and then we'll uh, review a little bit and go on. I say then, they did not stumble so as to fall, did they? He's, of course, talking about Israel there. May it never be. But by their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make them jealous. Now, if their transgression is riches for the world and their failure is riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their fulfillment be? But I am speaking to you who are Gentiles. Inasmuch then as I am an apostle of the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. If somehow I might move to jealousy my fellow countrymen and save some of them. For if their rejection is the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? If the first piece of dough is holy, the lump is also. And if the root is holy, the branches are too. But if some of the branches were broken off and you, being a wild olive, were grafted in among them and became partaker with them of the rich root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. But if you are arrogant, remember that it is not you who supports the root, but the root supports you. You will say then, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. Quite right. They were broken off for their unbelief, but you stand by your faith. Do not be conceited, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, He will not spare you either. Okay? Well, there's a number of challenging things to think about in these verses, but last week we were looking at verses... Uh, I stopped at 21, didn't I? I meant to go further. Let me keep going. Uh, Behold then the kindness and the severity of God to those who fell, severity, but to you, God's kindness. If you continue in His kindness, otherwise you also will be cut off. And they also, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God is able to graft them in again. For if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree and were grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will those who are natural branches be grafted in to their own olive tree? Okay? Okay. Uh, so, going back then, last week, looked at, we looked at verses 11 through 15. Uh, what kind of things do you remember uh, that we talked about last week? Talk about the transgression the Okay. Okay, okay. Okay. Uh, he's talking about verse 11 there where uh, Paul refers to their transgression. Uh, and then in verse 12 where he talks about their transgressions is rich, their transgression is riches for the world and their failure is riches for the Gentiles. And it seems apparent that what he's talking about there when he's talking about their transgression is referring to the fact that the Jews played such an important role in the crucifixion of Christ. And uh, that through their activity in crucifying Christ, an atonement was made for the sins of the whole world. So even though 
the thing they did was a terrible, it was a horrible thing. God has turned it to these wonderful salvation purposes of providing atonement for all of us Gentiles, but also for the Jews. Okay? So, he talks about their transgression, and then he talks in addition to their transgression there in verse 12, he talks about their what? Their failure, okay? And he says specifically their failure had some benefit for us as Gentiles, okay? Uh, So, what's he probably talking about there when he's talking about their failure? That the whole nation received the promise and there's only a remnant. Okay, so the nation as a whole has rejected the gospel. And in their rejection of the gospel, as we saw when we looked at some of the incidences in Acts, talked about some of the situations in Acts, where because of their rejection, the gospel then went to the Gentiles. So in their rejecting the gospel, in their failure as a people to to respond to the gospel and to embrace their Messiah in their failure to do that, that then opened the door for the gospel to go to the Gentiles. And like I said, we talked about several instances in Acts where Paul goes, he goes into a city and as was his custom, he would go first to the synagogue and he would share the message about Christ in the synagogue. And inevitably, the, the people of the synagogue, some would receive, a few would receive the message, but the majority would reject it and then they'd chase Paul out or they reject his message and so he would then go uh, somewhere else in the city where there were Gentiles, sometimes to a school or other places, and he would go and he would begin to preach the gospel there and the Gentiles would respond in large numbers. So that's the kind of thing that Paul is talking about. So probably there in verse 12, the transgression is a reference to their specifically to their crucifixion of Christ and the role that they played in that. And their failure is a reference to their failure to receive Christ and to receive the message of Christ. Okay? What else did we talk about? You just see Paul's heart all the time. He's going, I'm coming to you and I magnify that ministry. But it's also for the reason of I want to incite them to jealousy. I want them to want what you have. Okay? Okay, good. Uh, that is a striking thing about Paul. Even though his ministry is predominantly to Gentiles, there's still that beating heart of compassion that he has for his own people and his desire. And so he talks about this idea of jealousy. That by the gospel coming to the Gentiles, his hope is, his desire is, and in fact, uh, it's even prophesied clear back in uh, in the Pentateuch, Moses tells us, uh, or God speaking through Moses tells us that this is eventually what's going to happen, is that as these people who are not a people, the Gentiles, become a people, become the people of God in large numbers, the effect that was going to have at some point in the future on the Jews is it was going to make them jealous. They, was go- they were going to see what we have And they were going to want that and desire that and be jealous of it. And eventually, they would turn in large numbers to Christ. Now, as we observed last week, that's not not readily apparent at this point, is it? We don't see that working. And in fact, Paul in his day didn't see it working on large measure. Because he says there, he says, I magnify my ministry so that I can provoke my fellow countrymen, he says, to jealousy in order that I might save some, he says. So, he recognizes that apparently in his own lifetime, he doesn't have an expectation necessarily that in his ministry, he's going to see this massive turning. But as we go on in chapter 11, we're going to see that he does expect that at some point in the future, there is going to be this massive turning of the Jews to Christ. When will that be? I know we haven't gotten there yet, but we've talked about it a little bit. When, when does he say specifically that's going to happen? Okay, after the fullness of the Gentiles have come in. So, after, after uh, the gospel has had its largely the impact that it's going to have among us Gentiles, he says after that has been largely completed, then this great massive response of Jews uh, is, uh, will happen uh, according to Romans 11. And 
so he says in uh, in uh, verse uh, 15, he says, for if their rejection is the reconciliation of the world, he's talking about how their rejection, the Jews' rejection of Christ has served the purpose of spreading the message of reconciliation throughout the whole world and massive numbers of Gentiles throughout the world turning to Christ and being reconciled. He says, if their rejection is the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? And we talked about that a little bit too. Remember what we said that he's referring to there when he's talking about life from the dead? People are going, you said something about that? (laughs) It seems that what he's talking about there is uh, he's not talking about a spiritual renewal because the spiritual renewal has already happened. Uh, He says uh, that because he's already talked about the spiritual renewal that's happened among the Gentiles. Okay, so we've already experienced this reconciliation. And then he talks about their acceptance. Okay, so so at the, then at some point there's going to be a significant acceptance of the gospel message by the by the Jews. So so that's their spiritual renewal. So then he's saying with that spiritual renewal of the Jews, what's going to happen after that? Okay, so this life from the dead is not apparently a reference to the reconciliation of the world or the renewal with the Jews, but is reference to something will happen after those things have happened. So it is apparently a reference to the culmination of history. It's a reference to the the grand resurrection of the saints. So Paul is is apparently associating, as he does later when he talks about after the fullness of the Gentiles, he's apparently associating this large, massive turning of the Jews of their, as he'll say later in verses we'll look at next week, of their, of their being grafted back in. That after that happens, that's going to be associated with the end times. That's going to be associated with the fullness of the Gentiles. It's going to be associated with the resurrection of the saints. Okay, so, so it's not something that we would necessarily expect to see today. Okay, unless we are in fact in the uh, in the very end times, but it's not something that we would necessarily expect today as we look around that Jews are in large measure being provoked to jealousy and then turning to Christ. Okay, now they may be being provoked to jealousy, but it's not having as yet the desired result of them turning to Christ. So what we see in this whole passage, if we kind of back off from it, we've kind of been looking at the details. If we back off from it, what we see is Paul is talking about, what Paul is talking about is the interplay, the interfacing, if you will, of Jew with Gentile in, the, in God's redemptive scheme. Okay. Clear back when we started in Romans chapter 9, we said that Romans chapter 9 through 11 is really a discussion uh, not so much of personal individual salvation issues, although that does come up periodically in these chapters, but it's primarily a discussion of what we call salvation history. What, how God is working through history, working historically to effect His salvation purposes in order that, as He says at the end of chapter 11, that He might extend mercy to all that He might show mercy to all. So God has this plan of salvation that He is, that he is carrying out and, and, and He's doing it primarily through these two identifiable groups, the Jews first and then the Gentiles. Okay? And so this, this chapter, and particularly the passages that we're looking at now, discuss this interplay or this interaction between Jew and Gentile. And what Paul has set before us so far is that the Jews started out and they were God's chosen people. They were God's family. They were, as he says in another place, they were the household of God. Okay, And, and they were in this special privileged position, not because God only wanted to save them, but because God wanted to use them, as he said to Abraham, to bless all the nations of the earth. So he begins with Israel. And God's ideal 
was that in blessing Israel and Israel's response to him and Israel's walking with him, in response to that, the Gentiles would see that and would be drawn to God. Okay, That's what God's intent and purpose was. But of course, Israel didn't walk with God. Israel eventually abandoned God and turned and went a-whoring after other idols and other gods. Okay, And so, so we have two alternatives at that point. Either forget God's plan, forget the Gentiles, you know, the Jews blew it, so now the Gentiles don't get saved. Well, God's greater than that. Okay? God is greater than that. So even though the Jews have failed, God has turned their failure into the means by which the Gentiles hear and are reconciled to God. Okay? And so the Gentiles get reconciled. Okay? So first it was the Jews, and it looked like, and the Jews thought this way. We talked about this back in chapter 10. It looked like the Jews were the elect and the Gentiles were not. And so the Jews thought, well, we're the elect. We're the, we're the, we, we get in and all of them don't get in. Okay? But in chapter 10, we discovered God says, no, He's the Lord of all. So that whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And so we discover that it's not just the Jews who are elect. But God wants to save the Gentiles too. Okay. So, the, Gentile, the Jews then, by their disobedience, God works through that disobedience providentially to extend the message of salvation to us Gentiles and we get saved. The question now is, well, what about the Jews back here? So, that's the question he's wrestling with. Okay, are they just history? Are they just, you know, are they off the map? Has God forgotten about them? Has God rejected them? And what he's arguing here in, this, in chapter 11, uh, in the early part of chapter 11, he was arguing that the, that the failure of the Jews was not, com- was not total in the sense that it wasn't everybody, that there was a remnant. Okay. Now in the person that he's, he, where he is now, he's arguing that not only is it not total, it's not final. So even with this vast majority have turned away, and so Israel as a whole, when we look at Israel as a whole, they have turned away from God, and they have been, uh, they have been, as he says here in the verses we're looking at, they cut off. Even though that's true now, that's not the final situation. That's not how it's always going to be. So he has already alluded in the verses we looked at last week. He has alluded to this future time this eventual time when there's going to be this acceptance on the part of the Jews of their Messiah, their acceptance of the Gospel. So, so he's already anticipating this and he'll talk about it more in detail, more specifically, more overtly in verses that follow. But he starts in verse uh, 13 and he says, I'm speaking to you who are Gentiles. So, so Paul does something here he hasn't done all the way through Romans. He's, at various times in Romans, it's looked like he was kind of talking to Jews and it's, other times it's looked like he was kind of talking to Gentiles. But it wasn't always real explicitly clear. But here Paul makes it explicitly clear. He's writing to this Roman church that has both Jewish and Gentile contingent. And he says, I'm writing to you Gentiles. Okay. So when we read that verse, when we read verse 13, it's Gentiles. Our ears ought to perk up, right? Because Paul's saying something to us specifically as Gentile believers. There's something he wants us as Gentile believers to be aware of, to be cognizant of. And there are actually two warnings that he has for us as Gentile believers that he's going to set out for us. but uh, So we got down through verse 15. We didn't touch on verse 16. And it kind of looks like this is kind of out of the clear blue sky that he starts. This, but he starts into this analogy of the olive tree. And in verse 16, he says, If the first piece of dough is holy, the lump is also. And if the root is holy, the branches are too. Okay. Now, actually, this ties into the thing that he's been saying in the earlier verses, okay, it's, it leads into verse 17 and this analogy of the olive tree. So he's, he's leading into that. 
But but it really does have something to say about what he's just said. Because what he's just said, what he has just implied, is that though Israel stands in this situation, circumstance now of having been cut off or broken off from the purposes of God, they're kind of set aside. Okay, God's not working through them now. Even though that's true now, we can anticipate that that will not always be true. And he's already alluded to that when he's talked about this acceptance that's going to happen in the future. Okay, what will their acceptance be? And he's getting us to think, what would it be like if Israel in mass turned to Christ? And, and then he brings up this these two illustrations, the illustration of the lump or the piece of dough and the, and the illustration of the root of the olive tree. Okay. And the first one is this illustration of the piece of dough. He says if the first piece is holy, the lump is also. And if the root is holy, the branches are too. And so when he's talking there about this first piece of dough, what in the world is he talking about? Well, he's actually alluding to a passage in the book of Numbers. And in Numbers, Moses was speaking to the children of Israel before they went into the promised land. And he was telling them, God was telling them through Moses, and when you go in, you go into the promised land and you plant your crops, the very first year you plant your crops. He says, when you harvest those crops and you take that grain and you begin to do whatever you do, you know, to turn grain into bread. He says, that first, those first cakes that you bake, those first loaves of bread that you break, you consecrate those to God. You give those to God. And the idea was, it's the same idea of the tithe and the offerings and that sort of thing, that, uh, and the firstborn child. The idea is the first is always dedicated to God. Right? That's, that's the principle. That's why before you pay all your bills, the first thing you do is you write a check all right, to, to make your contribution to the Lord's work. Right? Because the Lord wants the first fruits. He wants the first offering. He wants that which comes first. And one of the reasons is because, as Paul says here, when we give the first to God, it makes the rest holy. Do you want all the rest of your finances to be holy and dedicated to God? Then give the first to Him. Do you want all of your crops and all of your harvest to have this? Do you want to have a sense of it having God's blessing and serving God's purposes and His glory? Then take the first and give that to God. Now, he's not talking here when he's talking about it being holy. He's not talking about it being morally holy, obviously. Bread can't be morally holy. He's talking about it being ceremonially holy or ritually holy, okay? So within the within what we call the Jewish cultus, the Jewish religious system, okay, there there were ways in which things were set apart. They were sanctified. They were made holy. They were designated as being pertaining to God. And when those things, when those first things were made holy to God and dedicated to His service and dedicated to His purpose, then that, then that in its essence said everything that comes after that is God's too. And we can use it you know, to feed our kids and to build our houses and to do everything we do, but it makes everything else holy because the first was given to God. That's the idea. God just wants us to understand this principle he comes first and when he comes first seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these other things shall be added unto you right it's that principle of giving God the first and so Paul says that if the first piece of dough is holy the lump is too that's what he's alluding to there when he says that but he's talking in the context of Israel And he's talking in the context of whether or not this present circumstance that we look at with Israel is the permanent circumstance. And he's saying, no, it's not. And the reason we know it's not is because the first piece was holy. And if the first piece was set apart for God and dedicated for God and God was going to use it and God was going to bless it, if that was true of the first 
it's true of the final. And so even though it looks like now God has written Israel off, he has no intention anymore of blessing Israel or saving Israel, that's not true. Now remember, we're talking about Israel as a nation. We're not talking about individuals here. We're talking about the nation of Israel and the purpose of Israel. Okay. And he's saying, since the first is holy, the, all the rest of it is holy. And then he uses the example of the root. And this is leading into his olive tree illustration. He says, if the root is holy, the branches are too. Now, when he's talking about this first piece of dough and he's talking about the root, most commentators are in agreement that what he's talking about there are the patriarchs. He's talking about Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Okay? These are men who, Scripture makes clear, receive promises from God and believe those promises. And because they believed God, they were holy. They were set apart to God. They were dedicated. God made promises to them. He made covenant promises to them and to their descendants after them. Because Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness, right? So, uh, the reference appears to be here to the patriarchs. And because God... Because Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the patriarchs, maybe the twelve sons of Jacob, because they were set apart to God, because they were dedicated to God, ritually dedicated, okay, because of that, then all of Israel that comes after that is dedicated to God. All that comes after that is blessed of God. Now, when you hear that, obviously we have a problem with that. What's the problem? It doesn't look like it happened that way, does it? Because most of Israel has walked away from God, right? So we're going, well, how can this be? If the root is holy, the branches are holy too. Well, what about all these Jews here that don't believe? How does he answer that? He does answer it. How does he answer it? Verse 17. They were broken off. They're broken off. They're no longer connected to the root. They're no longer connected to the root. You say, well, okay. They're no longer connected to the root. So, there's some sense... Now, we have to remember, Paul's using an analogy here. Okay? And with analogies and similes and parables and things like that, you have to be careful with them because it's very easy to try and make them, make them demonstrate spiritual reality in ways they aren't intended to. You know, I've oftentimes... And you've heard me use the illustration of uh, the simile of... When Jesus says, I am the door, you know. Well, clearly there's a certain thing he's trying to communicate by that simile, and that's what? He's the only way to heaven. Okay, He's the only way into the kingdom of God. So, so what, in, what in Jesus' simile does the doorknob represent? Well, nothing. You know? What about the hinges? Well, nothing. Because... Because that's not the point of the simile. The simile isn't about the doorknob or the hinges. The simile is that the door is away. Okay. So with similes and metaphors and allegories and parables in Scripture, we have to be careful that we don't try and draw too much out of them. We don't try and, as we say, make them walk on all fours. Okay. So Paul is using an analogy here of the olive tree now. And, and we want to be careful that we don't try and do too much with it. Okay, Paul has certain basic ideas he's trying to communicate. And one of the basic ideas he's trying to communicate is that there is a portion of Israel which no longer stands in relationship to the root. 
It's been broken off. Now, why has it been broken off? Well, we'll talk about that in a few minutes. But it's been broken off. But that's really not the point he's getting to here because remember, who is he talking to here? Gentiles. Okay, so it's you and me he's talking to. And he's got something he wants to say to us. So he says, if some of the branches were broken off and you being a what? Wild olive tree. Okay, so he's talking about an olive tree here that is the cultivated olive tree. That's Israel. And when Paul uses this imagery of the olive tree, this symbolism, he's using symbolism that we're very familiar with from the Old Testament because the number of places in the Old Testament, Jeremiah and Psalms and Hosea, uh, he uses the olive tree as being symbolic of Israel. Okay, So when Paul's talking about the olive tree, this cultivated olive tree, as he calls it later. Uh, as he's talking about this cultivated olive tree, he's talking about Israel. But you and I, I don't think we have any Jews in here in the class. You and I, I don't know, if you are a Jew, still raise your hand, let me know. But yeah, So I'm speaking to Gentiles here primarily. I thought I was. Okay. So, you and I, we're not a cultivated olive tree. We're a wild olive tree. Okay. We just... You know, you've got those out in your yard, right? Those things, those trees that just spring up in the middle of your yard, you know, and you're just more than glad to run over them with a lawnmower. <laughs> you do not want them, you know. And if they keep coming up, you go out there and you dig them out. Okay, you just don't want them. That's what we are. We're wild out. We're just a volunteer plant. We just grew up, you know, and we're like a weed. Okay. <laughs> so we're the wild olive tree. And he says, you being a wild olive tree, you were grafted in. And it's interesting, he says, uh, you being a wild olive were grafted in among them and became partaker with them of the rich root of the olive tree. Okay. So here I was, I just this wild olive tree out here, and one commentator made the point that wild olive trees were noted for their lack of fruitfulness. You know, for an olive tree to really bear fruit, it needed to be a cultivated olive tree. It needed to be babied. It needed to be cared for. And these wild olive trees, they'd spring up, but they wouldn't bear a lot of fruit, maybe no fruit at all. And that's what you and I were. We were cut off from the household of God. We were... You know, we were irrelevant. And God went and He took us. He broke us off from the wild olive tree and He took us over and He grafted us in to the cultivated olive tree. So that now we're grafted in, He says, among them. And we are partakers with them of the rich root of the olive tree. Who's the them? The Jews. Which Jews? Pardon? The remnant. The believing Jews, obviously. Because the others are broken off, right? They're gone. So obviously we're not partaking with them. They're no longer partaking of the root. They're no longer walking by faith. They're no longer receiving the blessings that come by faith. They're no longer receiving the grace of God through faith. So they're broken off. But those, the remnant, the believing Jews... We've been grafted in with them. Paul goes into great detail on that in Ephesians chapter 2. And uh, for time's sake, we won't go over there. I wanted to look at that, but just for time's sake, we won't go over look at it. But you might want to do that later today or something if you're thinking through this lesson. Uh, go back to Ephesians chapter 2 and read, beginning there in verse 11, how Paul says that one time we were cut off. We were strangers. We were strangers and, and we had no part in the, in the promises, the covenant promises. We had no part in those things, Paul says. But he says now this barrier, this dividing wall, the law of commandments has been broken down and we have been brought in and we've become members of the household of God. We've become citizens in God's kingdom. That's pretty cool, folks, because we had no shot at that. 
You had no shot at that. You were a Gentile. You know, sometimes we take things for granted. We grew up here, and most of us, I think, probably grew up here in America. Uh, a lot of us here in the Bible Belt, you know, and and so we just think this is just our natural heritage, and this, you know, this, you know, this belongs to us, but it doesn't belong to us. We're Gentiles. It was promised to the Jews. God has taken me as a Gentile. And He has broken me off from the wild olive tree. And He has grafted me into the cultivated olive tree. And I have become a partaker with the remnant Jews, with the believing Jews, I have become a partaker of the rich root of the olive tree. I have become a descendant of Abraham by faith. It's pretty remarkable. Abraham was a pretty cool dude. Remember our study in Genesis? Not a perfect dude, but a pretty cool dude, really. And he loved the Lord, and he trusted God, and he walked with God, and God blessed him for that. And God said, through you, I'm going to bless all the nations of the earth. And now he's taken me, a Gentile. I have no connection to Abraham whatsoever. He's just some dude that lived over there a long time ago. And he's made him my father by faith. And yours. Pretty cool, isn't it? Now, if this is true, that you have been grafted in to the olive tree and these other branches have been broken off. He says, you as a Gentile, he says, you do not be arrogant against those branches. Do not be arrogant toward the branches. Now, I don't know. I don't know if there's any kind of real spirit of anti-Semitism in the Roman church. There's no real indication there was. And I don't think we need to assume there was to understand why Paul would write this. It's quite simple. Paul would write this because it's human nature. When we get blessed, we tend to look down on those who aren't. You know, when I say it that way, it sounds pretty perverse, doesn't it? But isn't it true? When we're doing well, we look at some, oftentimes we look at others who, because of their foolishness or whatever, as is the case with the Jews, and we think, well, they just get what they deserve. Meaning, I got, I get what I deserve. So, you see, it's, it's a natural thing that we, that we get arrogant. And so, Paul is trying to short-circuit this tendency. And unfortunately, the church throughout its history has not done well at resisting this tendency. There's been a lot of anti-Semitism in the Christian church over the centuries. A lot of it. And instead of making the Jews jealous, we're making them bitter. We've persecuted them. We've killed them. We've demeaned them. We've laughed at them. We've called them Christ killers. We've done all kinds of things that are clear violation of Paul's admonition here in Romans 11. Do not be arrogant toward the branches. Well, which branches is he talking about? Is he talking about the ones broken off or the ones that are still that we're partaking with? He doesn't say. So I'm going to take it that he means both. <laughs> Douglas Smith, one of the leading evangelical commentators on Romans, suggests that it is both. <clears throat> There's a tendency on our part as Gentiles to go to make the same mistake the Jews made. The tendency is to say, it's all about us. And God has written the Jews off. He no longer is going to keep His promises to Abraham regarding the Jewish people. The Gentiles are now, it's all about the Gentiles. Now, it's the same mistake the Jews made, right? 
The Jews made the mistake, as we saw in chapter 10, of thinking, well, because God is blessing us now and He's not blessing the Gentiles, we are the elect and the Gentiles are not. Well, we're special because we were grafted on, so we're better than the remnant. And we're certainly better than those that were... That's a great argument because that's the very argument that comes up next in the chapter. He says, well, before I address that, uh, Paul's answer to the to, when he says, do not be arrogant in verse 18 towards the branches. He says, but if you are arrogant, you better keep this in mind. It's not you who supports the root. Abraham didn't get anything from you. It's not you who supports the root. It's the root that supports you. Abraham doesn't have you to thank for anything. But you've got a lot to thank Abraham for. At which point, the Gentiles respond back, as Ron did for us here, and they say, you will say then, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. Now, I want to point out one thing here. In, in verses uh, 17 through 21, every time Paul uses the word you, he's using the, first, he's using the second person singular. He's not using plural. So, Paul is addressing Gentiles as a people group. This is important because it will affect your theology when we get a little further along here. Okay. But he's addressing the Gentiles as a people group. He's not addressing us as a bunch of individuals. Okay? So as he, as he was talking about Israel as a group, as a nation, and Israel as a nation stands in this position of, of, of being under the severity of God, as he'll say in the next verse uh, next week, uh, the Israel as a people stands in that position, even though in, there are some individuals within Israel who are saved. Israel as a people stands in this position. So, he says, I'm talking to you now as a people, as a group, as an identifiable group. We might call ourselves the Gentile church, okay? as distinct from the whole church. Okay? So, the Gentile church is what he's addressing here. And the Gentile church might say, well, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. I is singular and it's emphatic. Meaning, what they're really saying is the, Gen- the Jews were broken off in order that I might be grafted in. It's an emphasis on me. And, and this is what I'm talking about when I'm talking about how the Gentiles have now fallen into the trap the Jews fell into. The Jews fell into the trap of thinking we are the elect and the Gentiles are not. Now, the Gentiles are falling into the trap of thinking it's all about us. This whole plan of God was just to get us Gentiles saved. And, you know, He doesn't need the Jews anymore. Forget the Jews. He doesn't need them. His whole plan was to save the Gentile church. And Paul says, well, you are right. They were broken off. But he does not concede that they were broken off that we might be grafted in. He doesn't say that. Why were they broken off? For their unbelief. For their unbelief. Okay. So Paul says, yeah, they're broken off. They're broken off for their unbelief. In other words, the primary cause of Israel's being broken off was a response to their unbelief. It was not in order that the Gentiles might be saved. Now, it has worked out that way, hasn't it? But that's not because that was God's primary will or primary purpose. His primary will, His primary purpose is the Gentiles would be saved by Israel being faithful to God. But Israel has not been faithful to God. And so, in spite of their failure, God uses their failure. He triumphs by providentially using their failure to accomplish His original purpose, which was the Gentiles might be saved. But it doesn't stop with the Gentiles because when the Gentiles get saved, it provokes the Jews to jealousy in order that they might get saved. So no, it wasn't just all about us. 
It wasn't all about us. It was about us. God loved us as Gentiles. He wanted us saved. But He hasn't written the Jews off. He wants to save them too. So, so He says, you're quite right. They were broken off for their unbelief. But you stand by your faith. Do not be conceited, but fear. If God did not spare the natural branches, He will not spare you either. Well, if you don't think clearly about this passage, what do you conclude when you get to this verse? We can be broken off as individuals. And we can lose our salvation. Is that what he's saying? Is he saying that an individual person who can somehow be broken off from the family of God? Well, what's he talking about here? He's talking about Gentiles as a group. He's talking about the Gentile peoples. And he's not talking about them being broken off from salvation, but being broken off from this blessing of being consecrated and used of God. Okay, That's what he's talking about. He's not talking about your personal salvation or my personal salvation. He's talking about just as Israel as a people were broken off. Now, Israel as a people were broken off, but that didn't mean that all the Jews who were believers up to that point suddenly lost their salvation. Right? It was not saying anything about the personal salvation of the Jews, of individual Jews. It's Israel was broken off. And so now he says, just as the natural branch, Israel was broken off, so the Gentile church too can be broken off. Sounds like what you're saying is the uh, because as the natural Jews were broken off of their unbelief, if you're sitting there thinking something similar that because the Jews are out and we're in, that that means that you are part of the root and you still have unbelief, you're out also. Exactly. Exactly. Now, I mean, to me, I'm also reading that in another way that we better keep our energy in check when we're dealing with Absolutely. And I think it is a... uh, And when we think about the application of this, the question is, does this happen? Could this happen? And I would say that it does happen. uh, uh, Not on a massive scale of all of Gentiles' peoples. But over and over again, down through the history of the Christian church since the New Testament era, we have seen church institutions, denominations, individual churches that started out great, accomplished great things for God. And as time went on, they became arrogant. And they became proud. And they ceased to walk by faith in the grace of God and began to trust their own merit and their own wisdom and extol their own greatness and over and over again, almost without exception, every church institution, every church movement in history has eventually gone astray. And they themselves have become the persecutors. Yeah. And oftentimes, it's interesting to me that it's directly connected with anti-Semitism. Not always. But it behooves us. You know, we, we, we are here in a, in a church that is vibrant and full of faith and walking with God and enjoying God's presence and God's blessing with us. But that's not a guarantee for Trinity Baptist Church. Where will we be 10 years from now? Or 20 years from now? Or 50 years from now as a church? If history is any test, is any, sheds any light on the second, on the subject, we will be an apostate church. Unless, unless we take Paul's admonition and are not conceited but fear and continue to walk by faith, accepting 
the grace of God as the basis of our standing with Him. Right? So, it's an awesome admonition Paul gives us, isn't it? Because our, our inclination is, as the writer of the song says, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. And if that's true of us as individuals, it's true of us corporately, as a body, as a church, as a movement. Where will we be? Of course, most of us aren't going to be around 50 years from now, Lord willing, you know. Uh, yes, yeah. And pray for your kids, folks. Pray for your children and your grandchildren in order that they might learn not to be arrogant, not to be conceited, but to fear. If God did not spare the natural branches, neither will He spare us. Okay? Well, next week we'll pick it up. Oh, did you hear something you want to say here? Okay, but I accidentally come across a radio station. Came across a what did you say? I accidentally come across a radio station. Oh, radio station. And and that was the. They were talking about churches and how how the gospel was being taught and preached and not taught. And uh, they said some churches seem to be moving towards more. That's a tremendous temptation for the church. And, and as I said, sometimes this is directly connected to issues of anti-Semitism. And we have no clearer example of that in recent history than the church in Germany in the middle of the last century. It was unwilling to take a stand on the issue of anti-Semitism. And eventually God had to write the words Ichabod over most of the church in Germany. The Spirit of the Lord has departed. Well, we'll pick it up next week.